on May 8th, 1784, the South Carolina Gazette reported that eight people were said to have been killed by hail along the Watery River. On the 8th of May, quote, on the 8th of May last, a most extraordinary shower of hail attended with thunder and lightning fell in this district and along the banks of the Watery. The hailstones, or rather the pieces of ice, measured about nine inches in circumference, killed several people and a great number of sheep, lambs, geese, and the feathered inhabitants of the woods, unquote. While death by hail is fairly rare in the United States, in other places of the world it is responsible for a fair number of fatalities. 1928, in Klausenberg, Romania, six children were killed in a hailstorm during a May Day festival. On April 14, 1986, grapefruit-sized hail hit Gopalganj, Bangladesh, and killed 92 people. Those massive hailstones are in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's heaviest at 2.2 pounds. And as recently as 2009, 14 people were killed by hail in the Anhui province of China. On the website Atlas Obscura, Dylan Thuris writes this. In 1942, a British forest guard in Rupkin, India, made an alarming discovery. Some 16,000 feet above sea level at the bottom of a small valley was a frozen lake absolutely full of skeletons. That summer, ice melt revealed even more skeletal remains, floating in the water and lying haphazardly around the lake's edges. Something horrible had happened here. A National Geographic team set out to examine the bones in 2004. Besides dating the remains to about 850 AD, the team realized that everyone at the Skeleton Lake had died from blows to the head and shoulders, caused by blunt, round objects about the size of cricket balls. This eventually led the team to one conclusion. In 850 AD, this group of 200-some travelers was crossing this valley when they were caught in a sudden and severe hailstorm. An ancient folk song of the area describes a goddess so enraged at outsiders who defiled her mountain sanctuary that she rained death upon them with ice stones as hard as iron. In our scripture this morning, we're going to see that the one true God, Yahweh, is going to send the full force of his plagues against Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh has now been warned six times to let the Israelites go so they could worship him. But he has continued to harden his heart, refusing to do so. The Lord will again show that the gods of Egypt are impotent, and he will reveal other sovereign purposes for the plagues, in addition to freeing his chosen people from slavery in Egypt. We will notice that God is not only acting in judgment, but in mercy, and that there is a bigger picture, so to speak, at work. In our scripture this morning, found in Exodus 9, 13 to 35, God is going to give us insight into the bigger picture of what he is doing in Egypt and ultimately the world. You know, we as individuals tend to only see part of the picture. We only tend to focus on ourselves and how the good or bad things in our lives affect only us. But because God is almighty, sovereign, and eternal, 
He knows the beginning to the end of history. There are things we can't fathom or comprehend about what is going on around us. That's the bigger picture that God is working out in the world. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to see a little bit of this bigger picture that, about what, is God, what God is doing in, through, and around us. We can gain wisdom and insight about the why and the what God is doing in our families, our churches, our communities, and our world. When we're focused only on ourselves and on worldly things like Pharaoh was, we miss the opportunities to see God's power, to give him glory, and to bring others along on the salvation and sanctification journey with us. So this morning I want to encourage us to be people who want to see the bigger picture of what God has for us. And that brings us to our big idea this morning that Moses wants us to understand that God desires his people to see and understand the bigger picture. This is important as we study the judgment and mercy that we see in the plagues. And it's important as we contemplate the discipline and the blessing in our lives that we receive from the Heavenly Father, from our Heavenly Father. As we dwell on and ponder that big idea, let's open our study into God's word this morning with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, open our eyes and our ears to your bigger picture this morning. Help us to see the why and the what of what you're doing around us. And through it all, give you praise, honor, and glory for it. Pray that we would not be so focused on ourselves we miss what you're trying to do among us and in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first point this morning is called purpose. It's found in Exodus 9, 13 to 21. Follow along as I read those verses. This is what God's word says. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourselves against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials, who, who, those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Now, this is the longest and the most detailed narrative concerning the plague so far. And it signals a new intensity and a new seriousness of future plagues. 
This seventh plague is similar to the first and the fourth in a couple of ways. First, the Lord's instructions to Moses are similar. In chapter 7, verse 15, which was the plague of blood, Moses is to go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes to the water. In chapter 8, verse 20, the plague of flies, Moses is to get up early and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water. Here the Lord tells Moses again to get up early in the morning and to confront Pharaoh. Now we're not told where he's to confront Pharaoh, but we can guess again that he is at the water. He's either washing or worshiping or maybe both. Second, Moses continues to give Pharaoh the same message from the Lord, which is to let his people go so that they can go and worship him. But then the message differs in a few ways. First, the plagues will become more intense and the consequences more serious than before. The Lord is going to send the full force of his plagues against Pharaoh, his officials, and the Egyptian people. The phrase full force can be translated as all. And the word all or every or everything appears 12 times in describing the seventh plague. This plague will show that there is no one like the Lord in all the earth. It will affect every man and animal and everything growing in the field and all vegetation and every tree. Every conceivable aspect of the land of Egypt will be brought caught up in these plagues. Also, the word plagues is plural, making us acutely aware that the Lord is not yet done sending them against Egypt. And he will send these remaining plagues against or to the hearts of Pharaoh, his officials, and the Egyptian people. To their hearts means that it's for their careful attention. Pharaoh is running out of time. He needs to pay attention to what the Lord is trying to tell him so that he can humble himself and be obedient to him. Shemesh says this, The Lord will strike Pharaoh precisely in the organ that perpetuates his transgression, his heart. Second, the Lord is sending these remaining plagues to their hearts so that they may know something more about him. He sent the first plague so that they would know that he is the Lord. He sent the second plague so that they would know that there is no one like the Lord. He sent the fourth plague so they would know that the Lord was in the land of Egypt. And here he sends the seventh plague so they would know that there is no one like the Lord in all the earth. He's already shown that he is the Lord. He's above all other gods. He has shown that he is the God of the Hebrews. He's shown that he is the Lord over the land of Egypt and not Pharaoh. Now he's going to show that he is incomparable and unique. He is the Lord of everyone and everywhere. And this speaks to both his character and his wonder-working power that separates him from all other deities. Golden Gate says it's not the uniqueness of a theology, but the uniqueness of a reality. Our Lord is the only true and real God in the universe. You know, the overarching purpose of the plagues was so that Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the world, and even the Israelites would know the Lord. You know, God wants us to know him. And he's made a way through Jesus Christ to, to do just that. He wants an intimate and personal relationship with us. That, ha that can't happen until we're redeemed, reconciled, and restored to him. This knowing happens when we admit that we are a sinner. We believe that Jesus came to earth to save us from our sins. 
and we confess him as Lord over our lives and over all the earth. And that brings us to our first next step found on the back of your communication card this morning. This may be for you. My next step is to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and be redeemed, reconciled, and restored to an intimate and personal relationship with him. Third, the Lord tells Pharaoh that he is also Lord over him because he holds his very life and the lives of the Egyptians in his hands. For by now, he introduces a climactic force to what the Lord could have done. The Lord could have stretched out his hand and struck <clears throat> or destroyed or erased them off the face of the earth. But he didn't because there was a greater purpose, a bigger picture for the sending of these plagues. For the Lord shows that he is sovereign. He is in control of all things, and all things run and move according to his purposes. You know, Pharaoh deserved death, but the Lord raised him up. He spared Pharaoh for a greater purpose. Fretheim says, the question here is not what God could have done, as if God's power were in doubt, but what should have been done had God not had a more comprehensive purpose that Pharaoh's life could serve. The Lord then reveals his greater purpose or this bigger picture for sending the plagues. It was so that they would see his power and that his name would be proclaimed upon in all the earth. Yes, the Lord wanted to free his people so they could worship him. Yes, the Lord wanted Pharaoh and the Egyptians to know that he is the Lord. But this bigger picture was that his great power would be seen by the Egyptians and the Israelites alike and that his name or his fame would be proclaimed in all the earth. In Romans 9, 17, Paul quotes verse 16 in discussing divine sovereignty and divine mercy and how the Jews and Gentiles are on the receiving end of both. In Romans 9, 18, Paul goes on to say this. So then he, talking about God, has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. The point is this. Pharaoh, like us, owes every breath to a holy, just, and merciful God. And in spite of Pharaoh hardening his heart against God and his people, God had a plan to use the life of Pharaoh in a way that his power would be seen and his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. We see this reality in Joshua 9. When the Gibeonites met with Joshua, they spoke of the fame of the Lord, saying, We have heard reports of him all that he did in Egypt. And in 1 Samuel 4, when the Ark of the Covenant entered their camp, the Philistines said this, we're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hands of, of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. The plagues made God famous. And his name, his reputation, and his character was proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord then accuses Pharaoh of still setting himself against God's people and refusing to let them go. Setting him himself could also mean treading on or barricading himself against God's people. Pharaoh was exalting himself in hostility over them, presuming to be their king when Yahweh was their only true Lord and king. The consequences of exalting himself over God's people would be the worst hailstorm the history of the civilization of Egypt had ever seen. 
This describes with unprecedented severity the plague that is coming. There had, there had been nothing like it before, and there would be nothing like it again. McCain says this, Worst is translated very heavy, continuing the theme that the plagues are just retribution for Pharaoh's hardness of, or heaviness of heart. Hamilton says this, A hailstorm over Egypt would be about as common as a blizzard in San Diego from a nor'easter. It would be as unheard of as 24-7 darkness in the land of eternal sunshine, which is the ninth plague. In total, it would be a storm that would demonstrate God's power and sovereignty over all weather and all nature. We then again see a difference in the message to Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. For the first time, the Lord warns them to bring in their livestock and slaves from the field so that they would be saved. God was inviting and even testing Pharaoh and the Egyptians to trust in his word. It was a call to an act of faith. Pharaoh and the Egyptians had seen God's power over and over again. It was now given a chance to trust in him and believe in him as the sovereign Lord over all the earth. Again, we're confronted with the bigger picture of God's mercy and judgment. He didn't want to kill Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He wanted them to see his mercy toward them and fall down and worship to him as their Lord. God wanted survivors rather than victims. Next, we see that these plagues will up the ante, so to speak. The previous six plagues brought death to fish and livestock, including horses, donkeys, camels, sheep, and goats. And they definitely brought discomfort and uncleanliness to the Egyptian people. But with this plague, any of the Egyptians and their slaves who were caught outside in the hailstorm would perish. This is the first plague where people would be killed. This is also the first instance of the Egyptians believing the word of the Lord. Moses records that some of Pharaoh's officials feared the word of the Lord and took the warning seriously. It was probably a minority, but it showed that the plagues were starting to affect the people. They probably did not fear the Lord himself, but at least they believed that he would do what he said he would do and had the power to do it. This would have been a belief that was short of conversion, would not have been a saving faith in the one who revealed the coming hailstorm to them. But we also see the flip side, that there were others who ignored the word of the Lord. They paid no attention, and they hardened their hearts, just like their leader, Pharaoh. And they left their livestock and slaves in the field. There's a truth here for us as human beings. We are, when we're confronted by the word of the Lord, we have two choices we can make. We can fear the word of the Lord and obey. We can ignore it and harden our hearts. Now that the Lord had proclaimed his bigger purposes for the plagues, was to show his power and so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth, we come to our second point this morning, which is plague, seen in verses 22 to 26. Again, this is what God's word says. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on people and animals, on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning flashed down to the ground. 
So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell, and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. The next day, Moses stretched out his hand and staff toward the sky, and the Lord brought hail over all of Egypt. It fell on the men, their animals, and everything growing in the fields. It happened just as the Lord promised. Moses' staff represented God's divine power and presence, and the sky was filled with thunder, hail, and lightning. Moses stretching his staff toward the sky, and the Lord bringing the storm could, can be understood as happening almost simultaneously. Even though it was Moses who did the motions, it was clear that it was the Lord who sent the plague. Literally, there was hail and fire flaming within the hail. Matyar says this, fire kindled and rekindled itself without need of fuel to feed on and spread it in all directions. The fire was self-perpetuating. Fire and water were able to coincide together. And the coincidence of two such mutually exclusive elements as hail and fire must have been extraordinarily frightening and destructive. Now we can only imagine what the Egyptians would have thought about this storm. I'm sure they were terrified and they believed that the wrath of God was being poured down upon them from heaven. The mention of the storm again being the worst in Egypt since it had become a nation acts as a reminder that this was judgment from God being poured out on them. The word worst again, as I said, was translated as heavy, shows that as Riken says, Pharaoh got exactly what he deserved, a storm every bit as heavy as his heart. The word struck is often used to mean a deadly blow. Men and animals were killed. Everything growing in the fields was beat down and the trees would have been smashed by the sheer force of the storm. This was a killer storm in which both hail and lightning did major damage. We then reminded of the power and the sovereignty of God and that the only place it did not hail was in the land of Goshen where God's chosen people, the Israelites, lived. This was truly a supernatural event sent from God as judgment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. Now, we've seen before the, as we've seen before, this plague was also an attack on the Egyptian gods. When God said that they would know that there was none like him in all the earth, the comparison was between him and the gods of Egypt. Kurd says this, it is critical to remember that the Egyptians believed their gods to be personified in the elements of nature. The catastrophe of the hail was therefore a mockery of the Egyptian heavenly deities including Nut, the female representation of the sky and personification of the vault of heaven, Shu, the supporter of the heavens who holds up the sky, Seth, who manifested himself in the wind and the storms, and Tefnut, the goddess of moisture. If you're wondering, this is where the title of my sermon came from today. I called it a Tefnut to crack. But in reality, cracking Tefnut was an easy feat for our God further showing that the Lord was sovereign over all persons, places, and things. 
So after God brought the worst hailstorm in the history of Egypt that killed man and animals and devastated crops in their fields, we now come to our third point this morning called promise, found in verses 27 to 33. This is what God's word says. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were destroyed, since the barley had headed, and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped, and rain no longer poured down on the land. As with the other plagues, we don't know how long this devastating storm continued before Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. But he summons them because he knows that they are the only ones who can stop the devastation that has taken place. But when he does, he said something he's never said before. He seems to recognize Yahweh as God, but in the broadest sense. He confesses that he has sinned and that the Lord was right and he and his people were in the wrong. But as we look closer at his confession, we notice a few things about it. First, he didn't confess that he had sinned against God. He only confessed to sinning. Oh, I'm sorry. He didn't, he, he didn't confess that he had sinned against God or even confessed to God. Second, he didn't confess all of his sins. He only confessed to sinning this time, minimizing his sin. Maybe he didn't believe that the other times he lied and hardened his heart were really sins at all. Pharaoh didn't turn away from his sin, looking for a relationship with the Lord. He was again grieved over the consequences of his sin, not grieved at his sin itself. Also in calling the Lord righteous, he was not talking about the Lord's character, but his actions. Pharaoh was making as narrow a concession as he could, only admitting to doing wrong or being unfair, not committing any evil. He did not have a fear of the Lord so his confession did not show true repentance. He then asked Moses again to pray the Lord to stop the thunder and hail. They had had enough. In both Hebrew and Egyptian, thunder is used to mean the voices of God. God was speaking in judgment through this plague, wanting Pharaoh to see his power and to let his people go. Pharaoh just wanted this terrible storm to stop. Then we see the first of two promises made in this section. First, Pharaoh promises to let the Israelites go, saying they do not have to stay in Egypt any longer. And this was a reversal from the plague of flies, but he would only give them permission to sacrifice in the land, and then permission to leave Egypt, as long as they didn't go very far. He is now giving permission to leave the land with no stipulations. He was willing to grant a privilege that he thought was within his power to grant. Second, Moses promises that when he has left the city, he will pray, and the Lord will stop the thunder and hail. 
The Lord is mentioned three times here, meaning that it was the Lord that Moses would be praying to, and it was the Lord who would stop the storm. The spreading out of Moses' hands meant that he would turn his palms upward in supplication to the Lord. And we again see the purpose that Pharaoh would know something about the Lord. He would know that the earth is the Lord's, and that he is in control of everything that happens on it. That includes the weather. We also see that Moses is not naive. He knew that Pharaoh and his officials could not be trusted to fulfill their promise because they did not have a fear of the Lord. We may wonder why Moses would seemingly give in and pray to stop the hail, knowing Pharaoh's past and reneging on his promises and hardening his heart. There are a couple reasons for that. One, it would prove that the earth belonged to the Lord and not to Pharaoh or the Egyptian gods. Two, it would also leave Pharaoh without an excuse for exalting himself above the Lord against, and against his people. Third, the Lord's power would be seen not only in sending the hailstorm, but in stopping it as well. And fourth, Moses believed in God's sovereign purpose in what was happening. The, loose, the use of the term Lord God in verse 30 is the only place that is used in the Pentateuch outside of Genesis 2 and 3. It was probably used here to show that Pharaoh has to, some, by, has to some degree been impressed by the power of God, but he doesn't yet truly trust in or truly know the Lord. He has at least stopped claiming to not know him. In fact, now he not only knows the Lord exists, but he admits that he was right in sending judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. We then get this curious aside. We're told that the flax and the barley were destroyed since they were almost full-grown and ready for harvest. And we were told that the wheat and spelt were not destroyed because they were not yet ready for harvest. There are probably a couple reasons for this, why Moses gives us the information. First, it is a time stamp as to when the plague happened. Because the barley was nearly ripe and the flax was blossoming points to January as when the hailstorm hit Egypt. And this level of exactness shows that this was a real and specific event in history. Second, it points to the devastating effects of the hail on Egypt's economy. The flax and the barley would not have recovered. Those crops would have been lost. And the fact that the wheat and the spelt were spared so that they would grow and be harvested later showed the mercy of God in the midst of his judgment. Proving again that God has a bigger picture in mind. Moses and the Lord now keep their promises. Moses leaves Pharaoh. He goes out into the city, spreads his hands in prayer toward the Lord. And when he does, the Lord stopped the thunder, hail, and rain. The Hebrews suggest that Moses' prayer brought immediate relief. Moses mentions twice that he would pray after leaving the city, which showed his complete trust in the Lord to protect his people. And there would be no question about whether the storm was stopped on its own or not. After Moses and the Lord made good on their promise, we now come to our fourth point this morning, which is prevaricate, found in verses 34 and 35. This is what God's word says. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts, so Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go. 
just as the Lord had said through Moses. So Moses kept his promise to pray the Lord. God kept his promise to bring the devastating hailstorm to an end. But true to form, Pharaoh does not keep his promise. Now that the threat of the plague was over, he prevaricates or he lies, and he would not let the Israelites go. His admission of sin did not change his behavior. And Moses records that Pharaoh sinned again. It's the first time that Pharaoh's hardened of his heart has been called sin. Greenberg says he acknowledged guilt, but went right on being guilty. The Neff says any repentance that does not lessen our impulse to commit the same sin again is not genuine repentance. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. The best way to tell true repentance is to see what happens after confession of sin. Reichen says this, true repentance is a complete change of heart that produces a total change of life. And we see this in scripture with King Saul and King David. In 1 Samuel 15, 24 and 25, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. In Psalm 51, 4b, it says this, and this is David talking. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And in verse 10, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Did you hear the difference? Saul, like Pharaoh, admitted he had sinned, but didn't admit that he had sinned against God himself. He was only motivated by a desire to escape punishment. David, on the other hand, admitted his sin against God and was motivated by a passionate desire for reconciliation and restoration. We also notice that Pharaoh's officials hardened their hearts as well. This probably included the earlier officials who had feared the word of the Lord and heeded their warning, heeded his warning to bring their animals and slaves inside. Pharaoh's hardening has had a negative effect on those around him. Now, we're not surprised that Pharaoh hardened his heart and wouldn't let the Israelites go. The Lord had already told us it would happen. After the plague of boils, we saw that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pastor Stewart talked about it. it may have been that Pharaoh had been close to giving in to the Lord and letting the Israelites go, but God's plan had not been completed. So he hardened Pharaoh's heart. We now notice that Pharaoh has hardened his own heart again. Pharaoh was sure that he, has, he was the ultimate authority over his people and his land. It never occurred to him that there was even an even more supreme being above himself. Even after being confronted by God, Pharaoh shut him out of his world and lived like he was in control of his own destiny and the destiny of God's people as well. You know, we as human beings tend to make everything about us. And the Israelites fell prey to this as well. They were thinking that the Lord was sending these plagues so that they could be free. And of course, that was true. But God had a bigger picture in mind for them. As we continue to study the history of the Israelite people in the wilderness and in the promised land, we'll see that it was a picture that they never really saw or understood for very long. God wanted them to worship and obey him as their Lord, 
and be the conduit through which the world would be saved. They were going to see God's power manifested in incredible ways over and over again. But what did they do? They complained and accused Moses and God of bringing them to the wilderness to die. They refused to take the promised land the first time because the people were bigger than they were. And they didn't think their God could give them the victory. And they crucified Jesus, the Messiah, God's son, the one that they were waiting for. They completely missed the big picture of the purpose that God had created them for. Something we need to be careful of as well. We see this missing of the big picture in an interview with the co-pilot of U.S. Air Flight 1549, which crash-landed in the Hudson River in New York City, a landing which everyone survived. In response to the question, was it a miracle? Co-pilot Jeffrey Skiles stated with absurd arrogance, I wouldn't say that. I would simply say that it's just that everybody did our jobs and we had good fortune as well. Now we live in a world that is much like ancient Egypt. We have so deified everything and everyone that we actually think we are in control. Now I'm reminded of times of struggle and hurt in my own life. And I might cry out, why? Why is this happening to me, God? I never realized that he might be wanting me to see and confess my sin or see that the struggle I am going through is not only for me, but so that I can help someone down the road who is going through the same struggle. When we stop focusing on ourselves, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can see and understand God's bigger picture in our lives. We can start to see the power of Almighty God, which should cause us to proclaim his name in all the earth. The Lord is determined that the earth will know that he is God, that he is Lord, that he is Yahweh. And that brings us to our second, last next step this morning, which is this. My next step is to stop focusing on myself and strive to see and understand the bigger picture that God has for my life and the world around me. This week, a friend of mine prayed a benediction in a Bible study that I take part of in Tuesday, on Tuesday nights, and I think it's appropriate uh, to what we've talked about today, so I'd like to pray it over us now before my final prayer. Let's pray. You go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go, God is guiding you, and wherever you are, God has put you there. Amen. Let us be a people who want to see the bigger picture that God has for our lives. So as the praise team comes forward to lead us in a final song, and as the ushers prepare to collect the tithes and offering, let's bow our heads again in the last final prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your powerful word and for your powerful name. Help us to know you as Lord and Savior and to be connected to you in an intimate and personal relationship. Help us to stop focusing on ourselves and strive to see and understand the bigger picture that you have for us and for the world. We ask for the help of the Holy Spirit this morning as we strive for this understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.